But we're going to put a face on sexual trafficking tonight and exotic dancers and things that people have had to do just to make a living, and yet we judge every day. But tonight, we're going to put judgment aside, and we're going to hear their story because they've got a story to tell. Jay De Los Santos, um, you're a dancer. Dancer. Strip. Stripper. For three years. For three years. Um, your biological father was a drug kingpin. Yes, sir. Um, and you have had to scrap to make ends meet. Um, yes and no. My dad was a drug kingpin, but my mom is an NYU master's graduate who is going to get her PhD now. So I think there's a balance and a struggle between the streets and trying to aspire to be the best in academia that you can be. Um, I haven't always had to struggle. I initially started dancing for the sake of trying to help my brother and sister after my father died the day before Father's Day in 2019. So I actually ended up working um, for my first night stripping on my 19th birthday, 10 days after he passed away, to try to compensate for the fact that he was not there financially. So late in life. So before none of this. Nope. How were you introduced to it? Um, so I had actually been looking for jobs. So I was a Boston University student, um, and I had been looking for jobs uh, doing administrative assistant work because that was what I had experience doing, helping my mom work in her school. Um, and so I was looking for a job that would be willing to hire me for two months and then terminate me so that I could go to continue my education at Boston University and nobody would hire me. Um, but I wasn't willing to settle down and work for $11 an hour, which was the minimum wage in New York at the time. So uh, I had gone on this job listing site and seen that there was a strip club who was looking for a door hostess position. And I thought that that was a perfect opportunity to kind of merge my social skills, my sales skills, in addition to being able to work an administrative you know, job. Um, and when I had gotten there, I found out much later in life, but I had learned that the ploy that they use to get me into the club is the same ploy that they use for all dancers, uh, or not all, but most. Um, so they'll tell you that they have this job that seems like it might be a little risque, but it's not too, too much. You're not a dancer, you're not a waitress, you know, you're just a door girl. So you just wear a nice little dress, but you're not revealed in any capacity. Um, and then, you know, when you get there, they tell you, oh, well, that, that position has been filled, but are you interested in dancing? You know, tell me a little bit about you. How much money do you want to make? Okay, well, you'll make that in a night. So, and then, you know, you're on the fence. You're like, mm, I don't really think that that's for me. I'm sorry. You know, I'm not really interested. And then they go into this sales pitch of, well, just work one night. And when you work that one night, you become addicted to the lifestyle because in that first night, I made $3,000, which I had never done before. What did you do on that night? I just danced. I danced the same way. Did you way. have your clothes on? I had my clothes on. I never took them off. But it was the idea of being paid based off of solely what I look like and not having to worry about anything or lift a finger. I really didn't have to do much dancing that night. 
Um, in the strip club, what girls do is called extras. If you are interested in, you know, hooking up with customers either in the club or outside of the club, I've never done extras. I've never done it in my career dancing. I solely dance in the club and then I leave the club and I never speak to the customers again. Maybe I'll add them on Instagram, keep in contact, tell them the next time that I'm working, but I have never, uh, sold myself in, in return, expecting some sort of compensation, compensation in return. What if the customer wanted to take it further and have sex? Then it's a, it's a no, and I would head out. You've always said no. Always said no. Mm -hmm. I'm just not willing to compromise on my moral standing for the sake of accepting a $300 payment. But that's not to say that other dancers don't do that. Um, it's interesting because there's a split. There are dancers like me who solely dance, and then there are dancers like me, there are dancers who are opposite of me who say, well, you know, when you enter a relationship with any man, it's always a give and take. So don't judge me because I'm looking for a transactional relationship that's more direct than if you were to get a boyfriend, have sex with him, and then ask him if he could take you out to dinner. I just so happen to ask for money up front, but it doesn't mean that I'm less of a person. It doesn't mean that I'm willing to compromise on any morals. My moral compass is just a little different than yours, but that doesn't mean that I'm wrong. Any self-esteem issues, self-worth issues from how men sometimes treat you when they see you as a dancer? Because sometimes they can say very most cruel, disgusting. most disgusting things. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, I think it takes some time. So you're called a baby dancer for your first year of dancing. And then after that, you kind of learn how to deal with men in the club. You learn how to deal with drunk men. It's interesting because you say men, but women say the most and do the most disgusting things because they are um, under the impression that because I'm a woman, it doesn't come across any, you know, sort of way. So I can get, a, I can get away with maybe trying to stroke your or, you know, do a little more than a, than a man would. Um, but my personal experience has been that my, my lack of self-esteem does not come from what the men say to be, but more so if I go in and have a night, so the most I've ever made in a night was $20,000, right? And that's just like phenomenal. $20,000 doing what? Dancing. Is it a different kind of dance from the $3,000 you make a night? <laughs> No, it's the same dancing. It, that kind of money? You have to understand that the strip club is a peer pressure type of environment. We add, we create the hip hop industry. If you want your music to play and go onto the radios, you come to the strip club to make it pop in. And when you get there, you need beautiful dancers to hype it up and make it seem like this is it. But you can't come to the strip club have a song, play it, and then not tip the dancers. So you'll cash out 20,000, 10,000, 8,000, 6,000. So imagine being in maybe 10 of those sections a night. By the time you separate all those bags after you've worked with certain dancers in different sections, you can get a pretty penny. So you're an exception. You started late. Obviously, your mother did a terrific job in raising you. Thank you. You don't strip, you don't have sex, you're not doing drugs. Obviously, you're getting an education, because obviously that's obvious. But you've also seen those who are less fortunate, the 14-year-olds and the Eastern European men who come from Europe and rich that no one really talks about. Talk about that side of the life that you've seen firsthand. Yeah, I think that taps into, it's a little less about dancing and more so about being a sugar baby. So I've never entered that because I do believe that that relationship 
even though it's contractual, is prostitution. It's just a little bit of a softer form of prostitution. Um, so that's just something I've never entered, but I do know that there are, well, in New York, where I'm from, a lot of the sugar baby lifestyle was established based off of who had the money. And so when you looked at New York back in 2007, 2008, a lot of it was white Wall Street men, but where were they coming from? They were coming from Eastern Europe. They had family members who were coming from the South. So there was a lot of, um, I won't say pedophilia, I'll say different customs, different cultural customs. So the idea that uh, a child could be married to, you know, a 40-year-old man at the age of 15 by giving consent from her parents, that's something that we've just never experienced in America. But it is something that happens because those cultural norms are brought to America. Specifically, I can only speak for New York. And so then it's, okay, well, I like a younger looking girl. I like a more petite looking girl. I like somebody who is willing to, you know, be around me 24 seven to be a pretty penny on my, you know, sit on my shoulder and make me look good in front of all of my friends. And for that, and you being available when I need you to be available, I will compensate. So a lot of the times, girls who are 14 and 15 would get these $3,000 checks per month and just be so amazed at the amount of money that they were making, but they didn't realize what they were doing to make it. 14, 15 year old, where are their parents? Well, I think I can, I can only speak for New York. In New York, we take the train everywhere. So it, I took the train an hour to get to school. I was commuting from the Bronx to get to Harlem every single day. In between that time of me getting home from my said extracurricular activities, if I wanted to, I could go and meet up with anybody in the city anywhere. If somebody has money and they're offering me a car service to come and pick me up and take me to their penthouse in Midtown, I could do it and still get home at a reasonable hour. But how do, how do they com communicate with 14 and 15 year olds who have parents in the household and the supervision? Different websites that don't have very strict guidelines for how people are allowed to register for these for these websites. Talk about these websites. I personally can't speak for them uh, or to them because I have never used them. Um, but I do know that it's very easy for an underage female to make a account and it's very easy for somebody who maybe does not meet the millionaire status to also make an account. So you have bad, you have maybe questionable people on both sides. You have people who, you have women who don't meet the age requirement, but then you also have men who are maybe overcompensating for the amount that they actually make in an effort to try to procure a younger woman who would be willing to have sex with them for two, three hundred dollars and think it's a thousand. So, so you're telling us that a parent can send their 14 and 15 year old child, okay, let me be clear, it is a child, off to school and by the time they leave school early in the morning, come back home, they could have engaged themselves in this activity. And the parent has Possibly. no idea. My mom didn't play that, but it's very possible, and it, it has happened to a lot of girls that I ended up becoming friends with in the strip club, because that was their story prior to entering the strip club. It was, I was a sugar baby, I was in an arrangement for several months or several years, I didn't realize what it was doing, and then I realized it was really prostitution and I didn't want to do it anymore, or I found an easier way to do what I was doing but meet more guys, so I'm deciding to work in a club. So how long are you planning to stay in this profession? Until I pay off my student loans. So you plan to just keep, and you you have no shame about it. None. No, Doesn't bother you. I'm not going to be ashamed of something that I believe is 
still a taboo in society, but doesn't have to be. Just because I'm a dancer doesn't mean I'm not intelligent. I can hold a conversation with you. I go to Howard University. I got into some of the best schools in the country. I just couldn't afford to go to them. So to have the opportunity to be able to make thousands of dollars in a night, now being a Howard University student, I don't have to work a nine to five or I don't have to work crazy hours every weekend at a you know lower income job. I can work one or two nights a month and be okay and have already paid my rent in advance for the year. So you came to Howard. We heard about the housing crisis that they had. Mm -hmm. You got caught up in the housing crisis. I you did. didn't have a place to stay. I didn't. Talk about that. So I didn't have a place to stay, uh, but I ended up uh, reaching out to a landlord who had posted his um, posting on the Howard off-campus website. Um, so I had moved in there, but I think with the Howard housing crisis, Unfortunately, we were so desperate that we weren't willing to do our due diligence in making sure we knew who we were renting from, what we were renting, and what the expectations were and the records of those expectations. So um, I'm currently kind of caught in between a rock and a hard place. I've paid my rent for the year, but I'm also looking to break my lease because I'm living in a mold and rat infested house currently. Have you ever seen sexual trafficking in real time? I have, um, I, uh, so can I, can I, can I use the exact term? No, no profanity. Okay, so no. I will say that there are girls who are utilized as the girlfriends to recruit other dancers, um, and they act as a friend, a confidant, to try to help you, and they say, oh, my boyfriend, you know, will let you stay with us for the night, and then it turns into the week, and then it turns into the month, and then they say, well, you know, my boyfriend has some customers coming into the club, would you be interested in dancing with me in that section for them? And so what ends up happening is, because that person has put you onto money, what ends up happening is, you, you eventually have to do what they say, which is have sex. So it's a very um, difficult and mental, mentally manipulative um, tactic that's used, but it's not as common as a lot of people think it is. Not every dancer is being pimped out. What is the profile of the girls you're describing? Um, what would you, are you talking about dancers in general? No, the, 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 the young girls women. who are being uh, 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 yeah. taken advantage of. What um, do they all have in common? We all came from nothing. That was, and so when you come from nothing, sometimes you have to be strong enough to say no, like I am, and sometimes money talks and you're willing to just do what you have to do and get through in order to make it happen. Let me go to the um, audience. State your name. My name is Marion Blackwell. Uh, this is really an interesting conversation. I have six granddaughters. Uh, Okay, so they're approximately your age. And I have to ask, does the question of health and death ever cross your mind? The fear of the health consequences and the death, you could very easily disappear. Does it ever cross your mind? Um, it crosses my mind, but clubs are not how they used to be, and you have to be very selective with the clubs you choose to work in. Um, the current club that I work in is female-owned, and the owner is actually a Howard alum herself. Um, so she's very strategic with the security that she hires, the types of situations that she allows to happen in the club and outside the club. So no, I've never been concerned about death or um, my health because I don't put myself in 
scary situations that would warrant that result. I go to work, do my job, go home just like anybody else. Uh, and secondly, ethical parameters. Uh, do you tend not to think that this even addressed ethical issues, uh, value systems? Uh, do you think, or I'll put it this way, would you want one of your family members or your children to follow the steps that you are taking now? Um, I wouldn't say that anybody who gets into the dancing industry would easily recommend it for somebody like my, like I wouldn't tell my little sister I want you to do it, but it doesn't mean that I'm ashamed of doing what I'm doing. It just means I don't want her to endure what I've endured, i.e. seeing people snort cocaine in sections or taking different drugs around me. I wouldn't want her exposed to that. But in regards to what I've done and, and what I'm okay with sharing in my testimony, yes, I refer some friends who ask me, hey, is the money good? Is this really something you would be interested in? And I say, yes, this is, this is something that I enjoy. I definitely think you should do your research, find your club, make sure this is something that you're comfortable with. But anybody who enters that field in order to be successful, you have to have a very strong mind. Cindy Williams, a CEO and founder of Love and Arms, I guess you hear these stories often. Yeah, and I think the young lady, what she's describing, I would say is the opposite end of what I see on a regular basis with the young people that we work with. And again, I think she's the exception, not the rule, in terms of what actually happens with young people who unfortunately sometimes come from hard places. And what we see on a regular basis, it's starting as young as, I guess the youngest person that we've had at Loving Arms was 10. Um, the young people that we're seeing, they are usually young people who are running away from something, some type of trauma that has occurred in their lives. And it's very easy to get caught up in a life where, yeah, someone's flashing hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars in front of you, money they've never seen, even from their parents' paycheck. So for those young people, it's a way out of a life that they struggled in their entire lives. Um, quite often, you know, I've had conversations with young ladies who've said that, you know, Miss Cindy, you know, I was having sex for free anyway. You know, I've slept with young men under the bleachers and, you know, at the high school, um, in the back of cars. Somebody's willing to pay me for what I'm doing anyway. How do you argue with that? But there is an argument. Yeah. It doesn't last. Absolutely. And it can lead to so many other things that they are not prepared to deal with. But in their young minds, I have an opportunity, because again, when you talk about um, employment opportunities, who's hiring, you know, a 15-year-old? Who's even the 16-year-olds? You know, what kind of money can I make at 17 years old? When someone's saying, you know, for a few hours a night, I can pay you for what you can, what you on a job, would probably make in a month. The trade-off for that young mind that has not fully developed to really be able to rationalize and to project into the future what potentially, you know, I'm losing for that young mind 
it makes sense. The math makes sense for them. But the long-term consequences. Absolutely. It doesn't last. Absolutely, I would agree. So, so uh, Amanda, so you know I'm torn. Um, uh, like Sydney said, this is the exception, not the rule. But somebody watching this show, when she says she makes three thousand a month, yeah, a twenty thousand a month, a two hundred thousand a year, mm -hmm. you're planting a seed. Absolutely, and we see it all the time. You know, a lot of times when people think about young people who are being trafficked, they think that they're they're tied in somebody's basement on a chain, okay, away from the community or the population in which we, these young people, and that's the furthest thing away from the truth. Oftentimes, these young women are encouraged to go to school because they're going to recruit. So they're going to show up at school with their hair done, with their nails done, with the, you know, the best of, of name brands on, with the gold on, the big earrings, um, with the latest iPhone. And for other young people who are watching that, of course, they're curious. You know, where are you getting that from? Who's buying that? The guy I date. You know, would you be interested in coming out with us? He's got a friend that I, get, I think, girl, really might like you. You should come out with us sometimes. And for young people who are caught up in, you know, all of the materialistic things that we, we see on TV and what's flashed, you know, in front of them, they have no means of really being able to get those things. So for them, this, is, again, is a way to have something that my parents are not able to get me. I know my mother is doing the best that she can do. She's working, sometimes two jobs. So when we talk about, you know, where are their parents, oftentimes it's not that their parents are being negligent or their parents don't care about their children. Their parents love their children. But they are working, oftentimes, again, two jobs. They go to work, they leave at 6 in the morning, sometimes 5 in the morning. Kids are responsible for getting themselves up and dressed and off to school if they're going to school. After school, they come home, they're latchkey kids. Parents come in or may not come in at all, may leave the first job to go to the second job in order to be able to live in this city. And oftentimes, by the time they get in, young people are in their rooms. There's really no relationships that are occurring. So a lot of the work that we're doing with young people who come into our program is relationship building. You know, we're trying to figure out what happened with this family in the first place. Where did they get off track? You know, how can we help bridge this relationship back together? What services can we put in place for this family? so that they can communicate again, that they're talking to one another again. But even in households, <laughs> that a lot of the households we work with, kids are, you know, even with parents are doing the same thing, the technology. Nobody's talking anymore. Nobody's spending any time with each other. And so again, for some of these young people, it's not even about the money. It's about the relationship. It's about feeling like someone cares about me. It's about feeling like I'm loved because I don't get that at home. Quite often in our shelter, and, and you know, it hit me hard one afternoon. We were driving on our way back to the shelter, and one of the young men, of course, said, Miss Cindy, you know, how long before we get home? Home. And I said, The shelter? And he said, Yes. But that shelter was more of a home than most of those young people have ever had. And so one of the challenges that we had quite often, young people would come into the program 
we would work with them and their families. And when it got close to the time for them to be able to go back to their family, because it really is about rebuilding relationships, putting services in place, strengthening individuals, not only the young person's getting that treatment, but we're also working with the parent to see how we can help support and strengthen them as well. But when it came time to bridge that back together, young people didn't want to live. I mean, didn't want to leave because, again, they got something in that shelter that they had not gotten in the 10, 12, 14, 17 years of their life. They got unconditional love and affection, and they were looking for that. So oftentimes, when you talk about, you know, getting caught up in the life, these trauma bonds that they get caught into, we, you know, we often can say, well, you know, it seems like it would just be easy to walk away, but it's just not that simple. It's not that simple. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.